Hey friends, this is Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, where we discuss pop culture through the lens of race or gender, and sometimes both. I'm your host, Julia Washington, and on today's show, we are discussing bed knobs and broomsticks. Bed Knobs and Broomsticks was first released in December of 1971 and stars Angela Lansbury and David Tomlinson and so many others. But before we dive in, let me introduce you to my guest. Eunice Brownlee has spent her life telling stories across many mediums. As a multi-passionate creative, she is used photography, marketing, writing, and public speaking to connect her message to the world. Because the heart of building community begins with sharing stories, Eunice uses her stories to connect, heal, and change the world. Eunice spends time teaching others the craft of story and her speaking and writing practice. She has coached speakers in telling her their stories with Women Speak and TEDx Folsom. All right, 916-ish. Eunice's writing has been published in Jennifer Magazine, Motherscope, and Spoken Black Girl, to name a few. When she's not doing any of the above, she can be found seeking her next passport stamp and drinking wine. And I love the drinking wine part too. <laughs> I'm so excited she's here because we are digital friends. We have not met in real life, but we chat in the DMs on Instagram. And I love it when people that I actually talk to show up. Welcome to the show, Eunice. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny to me that it's that when I was reading this, it re reminded me that we haven't actually met IRL. Um, we are totally at 100% in friends. Uh huh. Yeah. For now, one For of now. these out to Modesto and we'll hang out and drink wine apparently. or you know if you find yourself in the Sacramento region again it's not that far from me I can totally drive up and I have a ton of friends oh. in Sacramento I mean you know I have a we yes, have mutual we have friends multiple levels of mutual friends mm -hmm. we'll just have to do like a let's see everyone's legs <laughs> in real life party because we all have legs but we don't really see them <laughs> oh my gosh that reminds me of the funniest thing that so Julia and I met through a community that is no longer Dear Grown-Ass Women, and one of the Dear Grown-Ass Women that I went to meet in Portland, her very first comment um, the day that I was flying in, she was like, oh my gosh, I get to see how tall you are. Yeah. And I'm like, what? And, and she said, you realize that all of these Zoom relationships, we have no idea. All we've seen are people's shoulders and heads. And mm -hmm. I was like, I hadn't even thought about it at that point, but I was like, oh my gosh. And turns out she's shorter than I thought. Like I was like, oh, she's probably the same height as me. Yeah. And she's like, four and I'm five, eight. And I was like, oh, now I understand what you mean by that. Yeah. That's <laughs> so funny. I have a friend that I also know only digitally. She lives on the East coast. She was supposed to visit, but airline drama because the airlines be drama um, yeah. the trip didn't happen, but she asked me, she was like, I picture you being like five, nine. And I was like, nope. <laughs> it's like, maybe I have five, nine energy, but I am a solid five, five. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that is about, like the way that we present ourselves in this little square that makes yeah. us bigger than we are. That's a good question. I don't know. I know it's like we perfectly curate what we look like from the shoulders up on purpose. I mean, not me recently because I've discovered overalls and I've decided that's all I'm living in. <laughs> oh my gosh, this guy in my apartment building, I saw him yesterday and he was wearing the cutest overalls and they had like little paisley prints on them. <gasps> and I meant like, if it wasn't for the fact that my dog was barking his face off, I would have been like, dude, where did you get those? Because I need a pair too. Yeah. They were so cute. So I love that. I love that. I do need some ones for winter because my summer ones are like a linen cotton blend and it's perfect for when it's like a bajillion degrees. Yeah. But that will not keep me warm in the winter. Will not. Okay, so I love to pull the Google summaries of the films we review or the TV shows we review because everybody Googles everything and we trust Google, even though maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> maybe not everything that's on Google is true. Maybe not everything's on Google is true. Um, so here's what Google had to say about the about bed knobs and broomsticks. During the Battle of Britain, Miss Eglantine. There's a whole song about her. What's I like, know. Why did I struggle with song about her name? It's hilarious. I'm like, okay, my name is Eunice, of course. Like, I can relate to having the weird ass name, but Eglantine. I literally have, yeah, I've never seen it written out before, I think. So it threw me. 
I've never they, seen it. I've never heard it. I don't know. They always funny. call her Miss Price. I yes. don't even know if they, I'm trying to think about, do they even call her Eglantine at all ever in the film? Yeah, they do when she meets, oh, you um, just, when you she meets the professor and then he sings a whole song about her name. That's right. You just said that. And I'm like, what? But what? And I loved that He's song. Like on it. <laughs> and I still didn't remember. Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. Other than that, she never says her, her name. It's just Miss Price. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that was topic number one <laughs> on accident. Okay. <laughs> Miss Eglantine Price, played by Angela Lansbury, a cunning witch in training, decides to use her supernatural powers to defeat the Nazi menace. She sets out to accomplish this task with the aid of three inventive children who have been evacuated from the London Blitz. Joined by Emilius Brown, David Tomlinson, the head of Miss Price's witchcraft training correspondence school, the crew uses an enchanted bed to travel to a fantasy fantasy land and foil encroaching german troops so that's the setup i feel like that's pretty accurate sometimes google says that's stuff fair. and you're just like google did you and i watch the same movie because my summary would have been different <laughs> well and i also like i think that i know that we'll actually talk about this but i think that my child brain would have totally written a different summary of that oh 100 yeah i believe i so at the time of its release, Roger Ebert had this to say, and buckle up, everybody, because y'all know how we feel about Roger Ebert over here. R.I.P., I guess. Um, here we go. Quote, the Disney people seem to be drifting farther and farther away from a sympathetic understanding of what kids really enjoy at the movies. Sometimes they try to pass off their sad, dumb movies as family entertainment so that if kids don't like it maybe the older members of the family will this is a pathetic sort of self-deception on their part i guess the disney organization is worst when it makes family entertainment and best when it sticks to pure simple charming fantasy end quote <laughs> so that's how he felt about this movie which is which is which is what it is <laughs> it is what it is but also I was talking to somebody about this yesterday when I mentioned that we were going to be recording this I'm like what who who was like yeah let's make another movie about Nazis like the sound of music came out in 1965 mm -hmm. that was about that and it was like a family film remember when it used to come on tv and it was like this big to do it'd be this two night special mm -hmm. on I think it was CBS probably and like we'd make popcorn and they would play it every once a year. And I remember when it came out on VHS tape and we had both of the tapes. Both of the tapes because it was a like, ridiculously long movie. It's my, it's my favorite holiday tradition, actually. Sound of Music, they air it the Sunday before Christmas every year. Oh, okay. But um, like, that's another movie about the Nazis, right? Like... Is this yeah, and the Von Trapp apparently, and the Von because I guess it's like thirty years ish later, twenty five years ish later, and the Von Trapp family, the real one, is like a generation earlier in real life, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? So there's like serious creative license to put it during World War II or like pre World War II because like we're not full fledged war yet. Like Germany's just invading everybody in Europe right now. I just remember my sixth grade teacher who had been my, my pen pal since sixth grade, so over 30 years, she had gone to hear them sing when she went to Austria a couple decades ago. And she's like, to be honest, they're not that good. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shots fired. Okay. I mean, our standards were different, I guess. Yeah, but like- For the greatest generation, right? That's the greatest generation technically, I think. Yeah, that's that's fair. But I guess, I don't know, like- um, like I said, with my my eleven year old brain, didn't like the whole Nazi storyline, World War Two invasion piece. Like it just didn't quite register mm -hmm. the way that it does for me now. It's like like I was looking at the opening credits and it's like this whole cartoon of the things, and you even have like the freaking Nazi flag flying through the right. credits, the swastika and everything. And I'm like, wait, what? I, I don't understand. Granted, it's not like it's a Nazi sympathizer film for people who don't understand that that's not what we're saying. Right, right. It is because not. This is about the British troops who were defending their own land 
against the German invasion that was happening in Britain. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah. And I don't know, like, it's so funny rewatching it from the context of, hey, let's talk about it. It's Yeah. So were you 11 <laughs> the first time you saw it then? Or how old were you? Yeah. So I was 11 or 12. So um, fun fact about me, I used to live in rural New Mexico. And by rural, I mean, like there were no people um, <laughs> literally lived in the middle of nowhere. And so we didn't have TV. We didn't have like the only way that anybody in town, the whole population of the town was maybe like 95 people. Oh my gosh. Like the surrounding areas was 300 people. Um, my, my class was 18 kids. Um, there was one so... school for the whole like basically the whole county and kids got bussed in like an hour to two hours to come to school because there were just no there were no people and so the only people who had tv were those who had the money to have those giant satellite dishes mm-hmm. the ones that were like eight feet wide and took up half your yard mm-hmm. like hardly anybody so we didn't have tv we didn't have radio we didn't have so way before cable like this town was just so small. So my grandpa used to, he lives in Savannah. He used to videotape the free weekend on Disney channel. And then love that. And so every so often, like he would just send us like a set of six or eight tapes that he had spent the whole weekend just recording for us. And this was one of the movies that was on one of those tapes. Mm-hmm. And so um, we would send back the tapes that we didn't want to be recorded over, but this was one that stuck with us. So I was 11 or 12. That's so interesting that it is one of the ones that stuck with you because it definitely feels like, because there's a lot of animation involved because it's got that animation slash real human situation going on that Disney pretty much was famous for in the 60s and 70s. And I'm trying to think if they did it in the 50s too, but all the movies that come to mind are from the 60s and 70s, right? Like Mary Poppins is like, I think 1964 and then this movie is 71 and, you know, so on and so on. So like, it's so interesting, like seeing how, like, what am I trying to say? Because I'm trying to remember what I felt like, what I thought when I was a kid. My only memory of this movie as a child, Disney did these sing-along tapes. Mm-hmm. Somebody told me that. And it was that it was the animated part when they went to when they first the got to the new boo boo. Yeah. Yep. When they first and they're like, oh, we landed in the ocean. So that song. So when that song came on screen this time around, I was like, I still know every word. <laughs> like, of course I do, because my mother's respite was putting on those Disney tapes for me. Yeah. And it was on the one that had the blue cover. And the one with the blue cover, in my opinion, had all of the best Disney songs compared to the one with the red cover. Anybody who remembers these and wants to fight me on it, let's go. <laughs> my gosh, kidding. yeah, I remember those sing-along tapes. We didn't have that one because we had the movie, but I remember, I feel like we had some of the Little Mermaid ones. And mm-hmm. Yeah, Um. well, and I feel like most people, like this, I feel like this is a lesser known Disney movie because most people, I feel like, only know it because of that sing-along tape. Right. And they don't know the whole movie. And like, I should have actually clocked it, but fun fact, like that the animated piece of that movie is only like 20 minutes of the whole film. Right. And this like, is like like an hour and 57 minute film too. So yeah. it's kind of so long. It's not, and and I don't remember, it's been so many times, so long since I've seen Mary Poppins, but I don't remember if that was the same with that one, if it was just a short piece of animation. No, I think they I just kind of, you they wove it in. Like, there's the scene where Dick Van Dyke dances with the penguins. That's the one that yeah. I remember. I remember. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think of other scenes that ha- I don't remember. Mary Poppins wasn't really one that I watched a lot. Like, out of all the movies that were, like, kid content-oriented, we were definitely leaned animation in our house from Disney. Well, and, like, the other thing is, is Disney didn't do, like, they did the animated movies, and they did the, like, the, the combination animation live action films but they also had a whole lot of non-animated films like one of my favorites that the only place I've found it on the internet it's not even on the Disney channel like there's a bootleg version of it on YouTube that is um and my sister and I watched it a couple of years ago just because we were trying to tell my nephew about it and the <laughs> story is so ridiculous 
and it's called Bejeweled. And it's basically about this woman who is hired by um, the, she works for this museum to bring this like crown set of crown jewels. And basically like her, her box gets switched at the airport. And so they go on this whole thing to try and figure it out. And this is another one of those movies that we saw from the VHS tapes that my grandpa sent us. And it ended up like, maybe it was on the same tape as this. And that's why I've watched both of these movies a bajillion times. Yeah. Like that was a really fun movie that I never would have thought that it was a Disney movie because Disney is so closely related to this idea of animated film. Right. The other thing that kind of shocked me a little bit too for 1971 was how like, Angela Lansbury's character is full on like I'm trying to become a witch, y'all. Like that's the goal, yeah. and that in kind England, of no less. Yeah, and like that that, like we have our state church. <laughs> uh huh. And like so that shocked me a little bit too because I was like I, well obviously that makes sense that she would want to become like she's becoming a witch because then how how do you explain anything else in this film like. There's a literal bed knob that they plug into the bed frame that takes them wherever they wish. Right. Because like they, they put a spell on it. Correct. So it's yeah. like, how else are you going to make that happen unless somebody puts a spell on it? Right. Like there's so many things where it's like, so that let's get into that. Like the takeaways as a kid, watching it as a kid versus watching it as an adult, because there's so many things now where I'm just like, this makes so much more sense now that I'm watching it through grown up eyes. <laughs> Well, obviously the magic piece has to be the core element, right? Right. Because the whole the whole thing is kicked off by her wanting so badly to be a witch. And she the the movie starts out with her getting her first broom and she's got this um this certification from this school from Professor Brown and Professor Emeritus Brown. Like it's such this a fancy sounding name. And then you learn once you meet this character that basically all of his his contemporaries see him as this like this like uh this failed magician and nothing more than that and just mm -hmm. like this washed up guy he's not really a witch she really wants to be a witch he's just like you know uh smoke and mirrors dude right Which i feel like watching it back now like not even as an adult adult like when disney plus came out i told this was like totally the first movie i watched i'm not kidding um, this is how like integral this movie has been in my childhood, but like now, like in this like more feminist world, um, I think you just went and saw Barbie this weekend, mm -hmm. as did I, but like three thinking times. about <laughs> just need everybody to know I've seen, I saw it three times opening <laughs> weekend. <laughs> but like thinking about this woman who like the misogyny of his comments, but then she's realizing like this guy has put him out to be this huge thing that he's actually not. He's totally a fraud. Mm -hmm. And like, she actually understands magic far more than he ever does. So there's like this subtle feminist undertone in this whole thing, but also they set her up at the beginning to be this, you know, this spinster who lives with her cat in this giant house. Like the first one, of the first things the kids say when they walk in is like, well, who lives here with you? And she's like, this, this place suits my needs. And she's mm -hmm. kind of shamed by this little kid. And I'm like, wow, what a shithead. Like he's only like <laughs> 10 or 11. And he's already just like, what, don't you need a man? Right. And then she's like, me and my cat are good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but, and then like toward the total spoilers, but like towards the end when, um, he takes the, he takes the star from the the lion mm -hmm. and then he's like let me hold on to it because women have a way of losing things and then he totally loses it um or the magic makes it disappear or whatever but like there's just all of these it, of course it's 1971 so <laughs> I have to think about it but like as a kid I didn't see any of that for me it was all about the magic it was like mm -hmm. oh my gosh like it was it was about the the opening up your imagination to the possibility that a there could be other worlds b magic is, exists and c you can use said magic to transport yourself to wherever you want to be and like the fact that they chose like she had the broomstick but they didn't use the broomstick it was the bed that was the transporter which right. was such an odd decision of like oh yeah let's let's use a bed because that totally makes sense let's put all of these children in a bed with grown-ups that they don't know <laughs> Right. And send them off into an unknown land. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and the other part that's interesting that kind of falls in line a little bit with what you're saying is when she gets the broom and she's trying to like make it work. And the instructions even tell her like a lady ride side saddle essentially is yes. what it says. Yeah. And she's trying to ride side saddle and she's like, this doesn't work. I'm going to not. And then basically takes like control. Not proper. <laughs> yeah. And I loved that because it's like side saddle, man, every woman deserves a fucking award for riding side saddle. That shit is hard. Like you can't control the creep. Like not that you're trying to control the creature, but like, it's harder to hang on when you have nothing to grip with. <laughs> like, right, exactly. And yeah. that stuck out to me this time too. Cause I was like, yeah, girl, tell those bitches I'm not riding side saddle. <laughs> like, fuck you. This doesn't work for me. This doesn't work for me. I need to win. Um, and there was a lot of like, I didn't realize how much physicality was involved. I forgot about the physicality. So I looked up how old Angela Lansbury was when this movie came out. She was 47. Really? Mm-hmm. She's older than I thought she was. But then again, like I grew up watching Murder, She Wrote. And so I feel like, and that was filmed in the 80s. So mm-hmm. she wasn't that old, but for whatever reason in my brain, granted, I thought my kindergarten teacher was 83 and she <laughs> was 30 something um but in my brain like she was very old mm-hmm. like, she was in her 80s when she did murder she wrote and so um I don't know but she 47 but she doesn't look that old in this movie Mm-mm. she's definitely portrayed as this single spinster who's living out in the country all by herself and then this is my other thing like I know that there was and during World War II because I'm a huge World War II buff which I'm wondering if that's why this movie like it sparked your interest sparked something in me or if I that I don't know but like realizing as an adult that this movie was about World War II and the the, the German invasion into Britain mm-hmm. I was like oh huh interesting anyway but like she doesn't even like kids, but like their whole thing was they were evacuating the kids out of London. Um, and so many of them ended up as orphans because their their parents stayed back to fight the war and all this stuff. But it's like, here you have this woman, just because she's got space, she's not even actually asked if she wants to take them all. She's just like, well, the minister has ordered this. So boom, you're taking these children. And right. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, no, you don't want these children with me. And it's funny because I feel like if they would have known about her witchcraft stuff, they, they probably, probably wouldn't have let the kids go there. They probably right. would like, oh, no, we're not putting any children in there, lest you um, groom them or something. Right. It's interesting how in in like if this were re- like real life, if you will, she w- and people would have known about her. She probably would have been an outcast for her witchcraft practice. But everyone just kind of loves her because she's quirky and different. Like she was did a really good job at like keeping the witchcraft of it all secret. Yes. Um, and then even when like the kids towards the end, and we're a spoiler filled show, so don't feel bad for spoiling anything, especially because this movie came out in 1971. So it's like, yeah, like <laughs> that's on you, dude. That's on you. Um especially when and like and then this growth that she has with like oh I actually really enjoyed the children because they aided in her mission of trying to figure out because the spell book that she uses or that um professor brown has has been ripped in half so she's trying to figure out what's this other piece of this spell and so that sort of sets them on this mission that sort of leads them into um the animation imaginary land um and so it's just it's funny because they're so helpful like the little one has that magazine Mm -hmm. that has all the details about it and like he's like well it's all right here and you know and then by the end of it she's like oh I like these kids because they helped me (laughs) like I would even say that it's not all the kids I think it's just Paul like I think it is yeah and he's He's reading about it. He's sharing about it. And I think that that's why he was the one bestowed with the magic powers to make the knob work. Mm-hmm. And the other kids were like, Paul, you're getting in the way. And like, how many of us heard that growing up, right? Like kids should be seen and not heard. And, um, you know, he's the little one. And so he's kind of like shoved to the side and like, do it, do what you're told. And, and he's like, no, no, I have a voice here. I have the information. I can be helpful. 
and yeah. so it's really like he really is the hero of the story because he totally saves the day he totally saves the day and I just he was so adorable I think um the other thing too that struck me was how when Professor Brown was like oh you got that to work you got that spell to work like and then he admitted to being like well I changed some things around a little bit because I made it like better but it was no like it, it exposed him for the fraud that he was right yes and I just loved how she was like so serious about her studies that she like figured it out and was able to like be a successful um you know witchcraft practicer and I loved that again still kind of shocked that a 1970s film would be about a woman practicing witchcraft like that yeah. still floors me and then it was a or maybe it was acceptable because what she did was it was it was innocuous with witchcraft right like she wasn't using it to do anything except for fight nazis which is a noble cause of course right mm -hmm. so like if she would have been using it in other ways maybe that would have been different but i don't know yeah like i don't know i still like the more i think about it the more i just think this whole like world war ii nazis storyline is so Fucking weird. Well, you're not the only one because <laughs> when I went back to Ebert's review, so he originally gave this film two and a half stars, and he mentions that the film doesn't have much heart. He also mentions that he loves the animation meets reality technique that is the magic of Disney. But he thinks that the entire film should have just lived in Nobu land. I can't say it fast. I'm sorry. And and like so okay not comparing it to films today we you know that's not the point but I'm like after reading that article or his review and then watching it again I was like you cut but how would you like if it all existed in the animated world how would this movie even work it couldn't like I was thinking because I read that I read his review before I rewatched it mm -hmm. with that in mind and it's like the whole purpose that they went there was to get the last piece they, they had to get that star of Astaroth. They had to get that last piece of the spell that wasn't in the second half of the book that they mm -hmm. thought it was going to be in. And then they meet all these characters, these animals and these characters that are like a leftover remnant from somebody else's failed magic spells or successful magic spells, I guess, however you want to look at it. Right. But like, and then that whole soccer match was pretty entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> But like, um, the, I don't understand how there could have been more to it. They're like, it's like you have to send them somewhere, right? Like they can't just exist. Like when he wrote that, I was like, how did you win a Pulitzer? I don't I'm like, I mean, cause I was even thinking about like in the movie up how they end up looking for, um, the falls and then they, mm. they crash or whatever and they're in this place with the dogs that talk and the they're searching for the birds and that's a whole world that's outside of their world sort of mm -hmm. right but it's part of the adventure right and in this way this one is kind of part of the adventure too but like they had a mission like there was a purpose for them to be there there was a purpose for them to travel and if you take away that purpose and set the whole thing in that world, it makes no fucking sense. Right. And not in a fun way either, because like the whole backdrop of fighting the Nazis and her having these kids evacuated, like that's the secondary part of the story. Like the whole, like her goal to become a fully fledged witch is in my opinion, the theme of the film. Like that's the whole movie. Everything else just is kind of like there as a vehicle to get her there. Right. Yeah. Like, opportunities for her to practice her craft correct and so like I I just I spent the last few days trying to think about like what would be even a good alternative like how could you even tell this film in Nobu land like I it just, my brain couldn't do it and I don't know if that's because we we've been watching this movie our entire lives or and so we're like this story makes sense to our our brains but it just was one of those moments where it was just like then roger ebert what did you think should have happened besides like once you get there right how does this work because did you miss that the whole point is for her to become a fully fledged 
like happy practicing witch. I mean, and fall in love because Brown and her have a thing. And yes, keep the kids because she's decided the kids are okay. But that to me wasn't my takeaway. My takeaway was like, she's like, I'm gonna, I gotta, I have to finish this. I started something. I need to finish it. I gotta finish it. And and she's like, because the whole movie opens with her getting her broom and yes. her, her apprentice witch level. And here's the last. And there's a piece missing. The whole reason she goes searching him out is because he totally leaves out part of the spell, that final spell that he needs or she needs. And I don't think that he ever expected anybody to take this project seriously enough that they would call him out on the fact that hey you didn't actually give me everything and she totally does right um where's the rest of this spell and um that like that's how they meet and so I don't like from a storytelling perspective like they don't get to the Isle of Nubumbu until halfway through the movie right the rest of it is all set up for how they get there but you're learning more about her witchcraft journey. You're learning more about his whole little like um, con artist gig yeah. and, um, and all the things that he's doing to make money with the backdrop of the war and everybody's evacuating London because London's getting bombed like crazy by the Germans and, and these like <laughs> those, those bookstore, like yeah bibliophile that I am I've never had a knife pulled on me at a bookstore I'm just saying could you imagine if that were a thing like book people are probably the like the kindest most helpful most generous people on the planet so like when that when that happened I was like "Mm -mm, nope wait a second we can't share this no of course not I have to keep this for myself and you know I, I can't I just can't see two two bookish people like go throwing down over a first edition i just can't <laughs> this rare for we're like nope we're both gonna take half of this book it's fine yeah uh, so like these two shady characters just crack me up because they just don't really quite make sense but they kind of do because you kind of get this illusion that like they would totally use these powers for evil if they could use them mm-hmm. and so i think that that makes it even more special of her being the the heroine here and outside of that like she's defying this whole like women belong in the home and women can't do anything because she's the only one who's successful in using these spells and this magic even though they were taught to her by men she's Mm -hmm. like I'll show you thanks yeah which I loved it's like she's just so matter of fact about the whole thing which is a piece of it that I really loved because her determination really keeps them going through the film Mm -hmm. and like the scene where you're talking about where they like have the knives pulled on them. I love how the guy is like, well, how are you going to get out? The door's locked. And it's like, sir, <laughs> you also practice magic. How do you not have imagination? Like, exactly. And then they disappear. And it was just so the whole thing I thought was delightful and fun. And like, you know, I do think it's a little long. So I think that, you know, you being 11, seeing it for the first time was probably the right move because I can't see a four-year-old staying engrossed in this in the way that like other sort of Disney movies capture little kids. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's not that much magic in it when you really right. put down, like there's the little bit at the beginning when she learns how to use the broom and then she does the spell on the knob that Paul is able to make work. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the magic just becomes their vehicle, their mode of transportation. Yeah. Um, and then and at the end, mm-hmm. in this World War II, but then they have like all of these medieval uh-huh. that are coming together. And it's like, where did these all come from? I don't understand. But then it makes me laugh because it's kind of this tie back to that that opening scene when the guy's painting the the road signs so that nobody knows where yeah. anything is. Yeah. And then you see this little army corps marching up of these geriatric soldiers. And it's like, oh, okay. Like for some reason, these geriatric soldiers and these like antique coats, suits of armor somehow makes sense because it makes right. sense. it's like well oh, that's interesting yeah is there disney i well and when i think it port sometimes i'm like okay not poor england because you know they're colonizers with that said there are moments sometimes that i'm just like gosh do you think british actors are tired of like playing like 
things from like the you know middle uh the dark ages or like medieval times or like something in that like that those types of period pieces because like I feel like that's a lot of what America thinks of when they think of England is like you're either like you know pre-England before it's you know established or your world war ii and that's it (laughs) but all of that is all centered on war which makes sense for them being called i mean but even look at like you look at their culture and how much of it is around decorated soldiers yeah like it blows my mind every single time i watch anything royal that like the sashes and the ribbons and the regalia and just all the and i'm like is this necessary like really yeah all decked out so everybody knows your place in this world right everywhere you go for everything (laughs) for everything for every living blessed thing um I didn't realize you were a history buff I kind of love that I didn't know that so now like I can share things with you (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I like history a lot I like um I like historical fiction, but World War II, for whatever reason, is like the period of history that has been so fascinating to me my entire life. I and think, I why. well, so I've been thinking about that a lot all the time for whatever reason, because like, I feel like World War II was sort of the last war that existed where everyone understood who the enemy was. Mm-hmm. Like every war after that, it was like, did you really need to do that? Right. Like, do you really think that's an enemy? Like, yeah. does that make sense? Like, why are you invading? Like, they didn't do anything. They're just trying to exist. You know, there's a lot of that when I look at like any wars post World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it was a really big. I mean, obviously, it's a world phenomenon because it's a world war. But I think there's a lot of like cultural events that really kicked off too in that era. There's a lot of cultural events and a lot of innovation. Like one mm-hmm. of my favorite things about that era is like you think about the Enigma machine and the code crackers and like so much of the technology that we have today mm-hmm. because of the innovations that were happening. And I grew up in Northern Arizona, so right miles from the Navajo reservation. So it's very strange. The Burger King in Kansas, Arizona has actually like a whole World War II Navajo code talkers monument like wow it's not a monument it's a it's like a museum it's like a museum display but it's just so weird (laughs) but um anyway like learning just the ways that all of these different um communities around the world were really innovating and like obviously everybody knows that Oppenheimer also came out Mm -hmm. um, let's not forget all of the ways that they completely trashed the the native lands in New Mexico and um and displaced people there to to test these bombs that they created there Um, but like you know so many of the things good and bad that we have today happened in this like 10-year period yeah weird and strange and fascinating there's this book series that I'm obsessed with called Basie Dobbs I have you are you familiar with it Mm -hmm. she is the author is Jacqueline Winspear she's from England she is a psychologist and an investigator, Maisie Dobbs is. And she, it starts in 1929. There's like 15 or 16 books at this point. So she served during World War One, And there's a flashback in the first book to her time as a nurse during World War One. And Jacqueline Winspear has family who served during World War One, So that's kind of what inspired her to write this series. So she's got a ton of research. I mean... It's amazing how she cranks out for, well, for a while, she, it wasn't every year because she does a ton of research on each one. And now we are in book, like I said, 15 or 16, I'm stacked over here. Um, And we're starting to enter the point in history where World War II is looming. Mm-hmm. so she works as a psychologist and investigator and she does like contract work with scotland scotland yard but also like people can hire her to investigate things and she uses like different techniques she's very intuitive in the way that she solves these crimes or whatever it is that she's been hired to do um 
her nurse background really comes in handy as well. It's just, it's so interesting to be in the mind of a woman in 1929 who's fighting stereotypes, who's like, is she, they look like her, what did they, what did her father was some kind of monger, but I forget what kind, like there's a something monger. Like, <laughs> no, like, <laughs> I can't remember now, but like, she, like, they allude to her mom being part, and I'm saying it this way because that's how it's referenced in the book, but they allude to like her mom was being part of the gypsy culture in, in, in England and like stepping away from that. And like, so each book has a specific case she's following. Plus there's like little second, you know, beelines mm -hmm. too. Um, and it's so good if you choose to read them read them in order because things happen and if you read them out of order it's like you can't really it's a whole thing somebody once said oh it doesn't matter if you read them in order and a friend of mine did that and she's like absolutely wrong because i was Turns so upset yeah she was like and jacqueline spears very mindful of that she you read the first one and you're like who is this chick like why like you're just kind of like uh i don't know like some people love it some people don't but then as you get through the series, you learn more about Maisie, you learn more about what makes her tick, you learn more about, you know, her feelings and emotions, you learn more about what she went through during World War One, And then now that her best friend's kids are like, like the whole mindset at the end in 1921, it was like, this is never happening again, we can go on and living our lives Da, da, da. and then people have kids and everything's great and then you fast forward like 10 years or not even 10 years really it's like 1933 I think is the first invasion right that Germany did yep. and they just have these like very like passive conversations around Hitler and what's happening in 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 Europe and and it feel and you kind of get it brings that human level to it in a way that I haven't seen really in historical fiction from that in, sounds cool. it's really cool. It's a really good series. It's <sighs> she didn't release one this year and I'm like, ma'am, <laughs> but the one she released this year takes a, a character from the Maisie Dobbs series and is throwing her into the young person in the precipice of world war two kind of stuff. I haven't read it yet. Cause I'm like, scared to because I love that character so I'm like I don't know if I can handle her being a main character because <laughs> okay. I care for her the info on the series I fun. will it's so it's so good it's so detailed it's just like it's just so good I'm like this should be required for about like because she really does get into a lot of history and stuff behind like what soldiers went through during world war one and the aftermath of like how poorly they were cared for um and i was like man you could this could be post uh the iraq war and it went like how poorly and you know it's not called ptsd in 1917 right, right? so happened until this till the 80s mm -hmm. so yeah. it's like a lot of that pre so she is that a lot of that precursor stuff she really did her research and i'm like now that we're entering into that phase of World War II, I'm just like, this is going to be so stressful, but I'm also going to eat every book she writes up. That sounds awesome. Well, and I've always been, um, I've, I've spent more time studying the European theater, but um, one of my all-time favorite books is Pachinko. Mm. And that spans, I think it's actually pre-World War I, because it's actually almost, it's like four, gen four or five generations. Love that. Family, but like, you learn all about um, the, what led up to the Korean War and why um, the Koreans and the Japanese hated each other for so so many years. And spoiler alert for some people, but it's a uh, uh, you know one of the sons. It's he's he's figured out how to pass as 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 Japanese mm. Korean, Korean kid passing in in post World War II Japan, and like it's it's all of these things that. For me, as a mixed race person, thinking about even you know what what we've dealt with in our post-war cultures here in the U.S., like mm -hmm. there's so many threads and ties that are completely relatable that you just see us continue to repeat these patterns throughout history, like a bunch of dumbasses. Mm -hmm. um, one of the few things that was it Winston Churchill who actually said that about people who are ignorant to history are doomed to repeat it. I think so. I don't remember. I think that's it, with it, but I feel like I read somewhere some 
but he wasn't actually the one that, that said, said it. it. And that, ha- I know it's like the same with Mark Twain. He's constantly miscre- miscredited for quotes all the time. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, I love that you love like that time period and have studied it and what have you. And can we maybe safely say it's because of bed knobs and broomsticks? <laughs> it's possible. It's very possible. Um, although I saw a funny story and I actually, I am going to take this down to the library and get it scanned to digital because, um, my friend's dad was going to do this many moons ago and he has since passed away. But when I moved, I found my final history day tape from 1995, where I can't remember what the theme was that year. Um, but for those people who don't believe that national history day is a thing, and I'm talking to you, Sarah, um, it's a thing and it's still a thing. Um, but it, it was an organization that geeks like me got involved in, in school. And so it was a thing that everybody nationally had, there was a theme that you had to create a project around this theme. And so I don't remember what the theme was for that year, but we chose to do a project on the Holocaust and my friend Mm. and I did a documentary on the Holocaust. And the fact that my birthday is 420, and the fact that I'm a 15-year-old checking out Mein Kampf and studying Hitler is very strange. I'm I'm sure on paper until somebody meets me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's we weren't expecting that. Yeah. Um, but then the funny part about this whole thing is that we we told the story of the Holocaust from the perspective of uh the Nazis and from the perspective of the Jewish prisoners mm. um, to understand because we wanted to understand their experiences and what through my research and all the books and the diaries that I had read was so much of it was just this like I'm a soldier uh, of the German army these were my orders and I was told to do so and so there was this whole big question about what who knew how much and like how culpable are you if you're just following orders without the context of what's going right. on like really trying to understand how this atrocity happened. Um, but then, so in the film, my my friend and I, my friend who is a blonde Polish woman, um, we each took a role. And f- because of course I was the one, I played the Nazi. That's who I studied. That's who I played in the film. And so one of my favorite memories of uh, us filming this whole thing was trying to make me white. So like, Blackface, totally not cool. Also, whiteface, just don't do it. Just, yeah. just don't do it. But we spent hours trying to make me not be black. Oh my gosh. So that I could play a Nazi in this film. And then I'll never forget the judges are like, so this is an interesting decision that you <laughs> chose here. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. yeah, her argument was that she was Polish and it made sense. And I went with it. <laughs> that's so funny that's an Um, we had fun but and I mean that was high school and I think before that I was interested in this period of time Mm -hmm. and that's probably how that project came to fruition because my dad and maybe it was my dad a little bit because he had a ton of books that I had um he just had them I don't know why but he had them and I read was reading them so yeah yeah Yeah. It's so interesting. I had a conversation when I was reviewing Barbie for another podcast. I was like, I loved that this set was like Palm Springs esque because Palm Springs has that mid-century architecture. I freaking love. And like, maybe that's why I loved. That's why I feel like my vibe is mid-century slash art deco. Like those it's the art deco, I don't know where that comes from, but like the mid-century is like, I think it's because I was constantly playing with like retro Barbies. <laughs> yes. Yes. <sighs> oh my goodness. Um, Eunice, I am so thankful. Oh, do you have anything else you want to add about this movie before we close out? No. Other okay. than that, like seriously, if you haven't seen it, like this is one of those things, like I think because I watched it so much as a child. I just took for granted that, oh, everybody must have been watching this because my grandpa felt it was important enough to mm-hmm. put it on a VHS tape to make sure we didn't miss out on pop culture moments. Like yeah. everything from 1989 to 1991, things that happened, I missed out on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, I so I play catch up, but I, I've had this assumption that so many people have known this movie and most people haven't other than that sing-along tape. Like that's what everybody yeah. says. Like, well, I remember that one sing-along tape. 
about that one song yeah yeah. that just that cracks me up all the time I take things for granted I guess when you watch the same movie 50,000 times because it's the only one you have right it makes sense yeah I miss the days where you could record stuff off tv and keep it forever and ever and always I remember going to LA to visit my aunt in 1995 when the who drank the diet coke episode of friends was on and i was very upset because our vcr plus didn't pick it up like I, i'll never forget when vcr plus came along because it made recording stuff so much easier yeah especially growing up in arizona where we didn't do a time change so like that screwed us up so many times because in the summertime we were pacific time in the wintertime we were mountain time so we always had to figure out when yeah coming on for us vcr plus it was like just had to plug in the little code and it did the thing oh such a nerd those were the days though because now it's like whatever that's a whole other episode i should do to transition to dvr Mm -hmm. and the thing about dvr is like they delete your shit if it gets too full and you're like fuck like i'm not that fast (laughs) like That's why I appreciate streaming. But then even that with all their different contracts, it's like, I still haven't ever finished Mad Men because I was watching it and then Netflix lost their contract with it and then it disappeared. And then I found it on Freebie, which is an Amazon product. Mm-hmm. So you got to watch it with commercials. And I'm like, eh, I'll wait till somebody else picks it up again. Which is so dumb because it was on AMC originally and AMC does not do commercials for their original content. Like that's the thing that also bothers me. It's like, if this show wasn't designed for commercials, don't do it. Just right. don't. Right. Eunice, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about bed knobs and broomsticks. Where Thanks can people, yeah, of course. Where can people find you, support you, all the things? Um, yeah, I'm on all of the things as Eunice Brownlee. Uh, um, Instagram, well, I'm technically, I still have a Twitter, but I'm probably gonna delete that, but I'm on threads now. That's like twi- new Twitter, I guess. New Twitter? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, at Eunice Brownlee, Instagram, threads. Uh, that's my website, unisbrownlee.com. Like, I'm trying to think, like, where else? Where else? I'm on the internet. You can Google me and find things. And I'll link your um, website to in our show notes so people can kind of take a look, especially if they need help with like public speaking or writing coaching or any of those things that you specialize in. Yeah, that would be awesome because that's been a lot of fun of mine to work with people on helping them tell their own stories. Love that.